Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> I thought it was so appropriate a while ago that uh, we sang, He Touched Me. And uh, some in this uh, congregation might have picked up on it or remember this, that Brother Floyd Sexnyder, who went home to be with the Lord 15 years ago tomorrow, and uh, had so much to do with shaping the music culture in this church, along with the kind of musicians like Mrs. Peake and and uh, and Willa Holiday and and Mrs. Howard, Jeannie Howard, and others, and uh, some of the music we enjoy now, we owe it to a lot of people before us. And I say a music culture that's developed. But the song he touched me, uh, Brother Floyd used to sing that song as a go-to. And what I mean by that is the music director, there'd be times that somebody at the very last minute wasn't able to sing or decided not to sing or freaked out or something. And uh, Brother Floyd was left holding the bag. And I know there were times, and he and I talked about these kind of things, and there were times this would be the song that he would go to, He Touched Me. And he didn't sing many solos, and he didn't think he should sing solos. I thought he should. I enjoyed them. And uh, he would always go back to He Touched Me. And every time I hear that song or participate in singing that song, I think of Brother Floyd Sexnyder. And talk about developing a music culture. We've been home uh, here for a few weeks now and been enjoying coming to the services. And I continue to be amazed. I mean, it's been somewhat this way for a long time. But the number of people, if we start lining them up, the number of pe people that could sit at these pianos yes. and play Amen. effectively, yes. I, I think that if we started a line, it'd go all the way back. I mean, it's just amazing to me. And uh, I don't take that for granted. I can remember the time as a pastor in Stillwater when uh, we were about three years in before we finally got a piano player uh, that was going to stick. And uh, our 10-year-old daughter actually played uh, some because it was just hard to find. And if you went around like some of us do uh, from church to church, you'll find that there is not every situation like that. And they're begging for piano players. Send us some piano players. You got any Heartland students that play the piano and on and on. So my goodness, I've enjoyed that. And those Millican boys, I tell you what, when they sit down at the piano, uh, get ready. It's good. It's good. I appreciate it. I was watching, is that Micah? that was playing here. I was watching Micah and he's staring at those keys and he looks like he's mad at the whole situation. <laughs> but the music didn't sound like that, did it? It was awesome. It was wonderful. Thank you, Micah. And thank you for your younger brother, whose name I don't recall, that did it in Sunday school the other day. It was a total blessing as well. Well, I'm going to preach a sermon, God willing, tonight. Out of, uh, I had an evangelist friend, uh, my friend Dave Hardy's friend, uh, named Lee Ingram. And whenever you'd go to the Minor Prophets, he'd uh, call a book of a Minor Prophet and he'd say, it's back there where all the pages in your Bible are stuck together still. And uh, so we're going to go there tonight. Now, I hesitated to do this and I've been resisting it, as a matter of fact, uh, for one reason is because Jeff Copes has been writing my case for five years. You've got to preach the book of Zephaniah or Zephaniah chapter one. And man, I hate to accommodate him in any way like that. But I really felt like this is where we would be, should be tonight. So we're going to go to the book of Zephaniah and chapter number one. So if you'd stand with me for the reading of the word, it's going to be necessary that we read the entire chapter, 18 verses. And honestly, this is a sermon that could easily preach an hour and a half. So I'm, I'm serious. And I'm, I'm going to get with it, though. I'm going to try to cram it into an hour and 15 minutes. So we're going to do our very best. No, we'll beat that, but we're going to try to move along fast. But let's read beginning in verse number one of the book of Zephaniah, who verse one says is during the times of uh, Josiah. And many of you would know that uh, Josiah was the last good king that the Jews, that Judah had before she was taken away into Babylonian captivity. And after Josiah, there were four kings, but two of them only reigned a month each and the others 11 years each. So they were about 22 years from the complete uh, captivity uh, from Babylon and uh, under uh, King Josiah and when he passed off the scene. And so Zephaniah is a prophet during that time prior to the captivity to Babylon. 
And it says, The word of the Lord, which came unto Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. And this is the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. Now get ready. It's, uh, it's not an easy ride. It's not an easy chapter. I will utterly consume. This isn't Zephaniah's words. These are God's words. Somebody say amen. amen. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked. And I will cut off man from off the land, saith the Lord. I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off uh, the remnant of Baal from this place and the name of the Camerims from the uh, with the priests and them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops and them that worship and that swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm and them that are turned back from the Lord and those that have not sought the Lord nor inquired for him. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord hath prepared a sacrifice, he hath bid his guests, and it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. In the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold, which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate and an howling from the second and a great, uh, a, a great crashing from the hills. Howl the inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down and all they that bear silver are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and Punish the men that are settled on their lees that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. Therefore, their goods shall become a booty and their houses a desolation. They shall also build the houses or build houses, but not inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to uh, deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. Wow. <clears throat> there are those that would read this and call it gloom and doom. It, and it does read like that. I would guess that most churches across America, last Sunday, next Sunday, or anytime this year, are going to be opening on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, if they still do that, uh, and turn to Zephaniah 1. This is definitely not a politically correct passage of Scripture. It's really not. But it is the Word of God. And rather than looking at this as a negative passage, which I do not, I look at it as a positive passage because it is God in no uncertain terms giving warning and still calling people to repentance uh, with these words that would no doubt arrest the attention uh, should of even the worst backslider. All that God is going to do. And so it's the mercy of God that he would give such warning over and over again and with such language as this 
uh, before he executes judgment and wrath upon them. So I want us to go back to verse number 12. And I want to point out something here that we're going to build upon and pay attention to in verse 12, where it said, And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish. That means there'll be no place to hide. The, the, the tunnels under the city that were supposed to be escaped for the royalty, uh, that's not going to work. God said, there'll be no place to hide. I'll search Jerusalem with uh, candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees. The say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. Father, we pray your blessings upon the time here together in the word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit might be at work and accomplish your will through these moments we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. God bless you. You may be seated. <clears throat> I preached this passage the first time in the month of September of 1994 here at Southwest. And in my Bible reading, I'd been coming through, you know, the Word of God uh, three or four times a year. And, and as I was going through, I would come to this part of Zephaniah. And I had noticed it before, but it said uh, about the men that were settled on their lees. And that little phrase there, that line, I didn't know what it meant. And I, I always said to myself, I got to go back and search this out and see what in the world this is really about. And so finally I did in the process of time. And that night at uh, Southwest, I was out in the foyer talking to folks before church. And I went up to uh, uh, one of our men and said, um, I'm going to preach on the Lee's tonight right quick. What's Lee's? He said, well, it's a Chinese restaurant that's over here on such such a place. And I found out there are smart aleks in every church everywhere. <laughs> and so Anyway, I asked another man, I said, uh, I'm going to preach about the lees tonight. Right quick, what's your take on uh, the, what the Bible says about the lees? And uh, it seems like it was a guy like Reed Thompson. It might not have been him, but it seems like it might have been him that said, you're the one that gets all the big bucks around here. You tell me. <laughs> I came to learn. I didn't come to tell you what it means. And that, that kind of, it might not have been Brother Reed, but it was somebody of that sort, you know, that you don't expect a straight answer. So anyway, he said that. Another one said, uh, well, he was in the Navy and he talked about the leeward side of the island or the leeward side of the boat and such as that and what that meant. It was all very interesting. Just none of it had anything to do with this. So what does that mean? That the men were settled on their lees. Now, the reason I want to know is Whatever it means, God manifestly is displeased with it uh, because that is the condition of the hearts of men that caused the kind of language that we saw God use that I tried to emphasize, maybe not as much as I should have, when he's talking about utterly consuming, consuming, uh, stretching his hand, which always has to do with judgment, cutting off, punishment several times, the noise of the cry, crashing, howling, wasteness, distress, wrath, desolation, darkness, gloominess, clouds, thick darkness, alarm, devour, riddance. I mean, why would God use words like that? We understand his love for his people. And he never did love his people because of their abilities or because of their size. He loved them because he loved them. And his love is unfailing love. So we know that God loves them. So why would God speak to a people that he loves like this? We want to know why, because I'd rather God look at me totally different <laughs> than how he is dealing with them at this particular time. I think any serious minded person would feel the same way. So what does it mean? Now, the question I would ask first, though, is uh, what is it exactly that brought this kind of language or this kind of approach that God would speak to Zephaniah to speak to this people in such terms of displeasure and coming judgment and display of his judgment. And uh, I'm inclined to spend a lot of time on these three things that are found here in our text, but I'm just going to give them to you and then we're going to move on. You can see it yourself and you can read it. You read it with me and you can see that uh, their number one problem was idol worship. 
or at least that's one of the first things listed. Malcolm and Baal, idolatry, idol worship. The second thing was astrology. The third thing was they did not seek God. Now that was their main problem. If you are not seeking God, you're going to seek something or someone and it will be idolatrous. In other words, it's going to be vain. It's not going to be able to produce and give you what God can give you. So they did not seek God. Uh, they avoided seeking God. They refused to seek God. And as a result of that, they're seeking after astrology and worshiping and serving the creature more than the creator or what God created rather than the creator himself. And then they are worshiping the gods of the pagans, the heathens, and they are into the worship of Malcolm and they are into the, worship, the God of the Ammonites, they're into the God of the Canaanites, Baal, and they're into this idolatrous practice. And it's a result of this uh, action or this conduct that God is speaking to them. Now, I don't know if you noticed with me or not, but down in verse number seven, he made mention that they should hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God. Now, hold on, if I can explain this for just a second. If you were here on Sunday, then you know that the pastor is preaching about being in awe of God. They were not. But if they knew what was coming, God said, you'd hold your peace and you would be in awe if you knew what was coming. And what is coming is what is called the day of the Lord. Now, when you and I read uh, uh, about the day of the Lord or hear the term the day of the Lord, we think of the big prophetic picture and what is coming of the day of the Lord. But I have to tell you that there were times of uh, serious judgment from God that came upon his people that also got the term the day of the Lord or the day of his visitation, the day of the Lord when he would come and execute vengeance upon them. All right, so this isn't a reference to that ultimate day of the Lord that we know is yet in the future, but it was a time of incredible wrath and judgment, the Babylonian destruction and the Babylonian captivity that was coming. And he calls it here the day of the Lord. And he says, hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now drop down to verse number 14. You read this with me where he says again, the great day of the Lord is near it is near. Now, let me read that again. The day of the Lord is near. It is near. Now, when he repeats it, it is near. Don't you think that probably he is trying to express a sense of urgency about this? That this is not just a preacher discharging what God said as he passes along and passively says it. That, and that's not what's happened. He's talking about it. And he said, do you people understand that the day of the Lord is near? It is near. And it is meant to express the kind of urgency that the preacher or Zephaniah would have delivered this with. That this is an urgent message. The day of the Lord is near. It is near. Now, many of you have children, man, you got to love the children around the church. And I'm, uh, one of the things I miss as a pastor is not having the same relationship with children as I once had. And I miss that, but you got to love children. So you that have children or like us have grandchildren, we've actually been in a situation where you got a little active child or grandchild and you're maybe in a parking lot or going across the street or a driveway or something like that and the child wants to break loose, they can't stand you holding their hand, they want to take off, and that child takes off, and you see a car, you know the danger they're in, and you don't say, uh, have you considered the damage that a car might do should it hit you going at the speed that it's going and you're in the way? How much the car weighs and how much you weigh? You don't do that, do you? There's a car, there's a car. Isn't that what you do? I've imagined it like this. I uh, I'm a very, pretty much a morning person. My wife, wife is pretty much not. And uh, so I've, I've thought about it this way. I've thought about uh, when I was doing my Bible reading one day, I, this all came to me as I was reading through this passage again. And it came to me and I had the fireplace going. And I thought, uh, what am I sitting here in the morning? And, and uh, the fire, uh, I, I smelled smoke, but the fireplace wasn't going. And I sat there a while and it's about 530 in the morning. So when I do my reading and so I'm sitting there reading and I'm, I smell this uh, fire, a uh, smoke. And I think to myself, 
Oh, that's unusual. We didn't even burn the fireplace yesterday. It's not even that time of year. And I, I, what's it? And I keep smelling. And pretty soon I realize I see smoke coming in. And I realize this house is on fire. And I look at my watch and I say, no, it's 20 till 6. I can't go wake her up yet. Now, let's see. What am I going to do? Am I going to go in there? And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope this fire goes out before 9 o'clock or something like that, you know. Now, that's a stress, but I'm just saying. And, and so if I go in there, I don't care what it's going to cost me the rest of the day. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to say, the house is on fire. The house is on fire because there's a sense of urgency. And what is really disturbing to me is how it is so acceptable in this day and time with the condition that our nation is in, the condition our world is in, the spiritual condition of professing Christianity in our world. And we got preachers standing behind the pulpits and there is no sense of urgency. Rather, there's a sense of smoothness and caution and carefulness and tippy-toeing around. It's time, my friend, that we get the kind of preaching that says, uh, the day of the Lord is near. It is near. And express the urgency of the situation. And that's exactly what Zephaniah was doing. That's exactly what God had him do to express this sense of urgency. The day of the Lord is near. It is near. Now, an interesting thing too would be that Zephaniah would be going about preaching this message in the relatively small geographical area known as the southern kingdom or Judah. And so it's not large. I've never been to Holy Land. I've heard the pastor's supposed to go sometime. I don't know if he's ever going to go or not. But I'm just saying, you go over there and everybody that visits the Holy Land is amazed at how small of a geographical area so much history took place. And so if you can just imagine now, the northern kingdom is completely gone and Judah is this little geographical area there and God has a message for his people and without technology and without social media, his prophets got the job done. So they would stand in the key places on crossroads and the gates of the city of Jerusalem and in villages and they would give forth their message. So what we just read in Zephaniah chapter one, you can mark it down Zephaniah was going throughout the country and throughout the land and preaching, thus saith the Lord. This is what God gave him. Now, he preceded Jeremiah, but not by much. And their ministry might have overlapped. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, one of the key things about Jeremiah is he is calling people to repent. And one thing we know about Jeremiah, he was a very emotional man. And he had an incredible heart for his people. And so he would have been doing like, uh, like Zephaniah. And he would have been in the crossroads doing what he did, which would be something like this. Repent, repent, O house of Israel. And he would be crying out for the people to repent. And he would often do it with tears coming out of his eyes and wishing he could cry Rivers of tears, so people would get it. So Jeremiah was giving the warning that Babylon is going to come. Isaiah had prophesied it 80 to 100 years before, and now Jeremiah really enlarges upon it. And Zephaniah is preaching about the same thing, though he didn't mention Babylon here in the first chapter. That's the feast that is being prepared, which is Israel, for the Babylonians are going to come and eat them up. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And so he's saying, you need to tell them the day of the Lord is near. So you got Jeremiah, repent, repent, repent. You got Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is near. It is near. And people passing by and listening to these men preach. What was their attitude? It's in verse 12. In verse 12, it tells their response. Said, I'm going to punish the men that are settled on their lees. Somebody said, I don't know what that means. Well, it's in this case a heart matter. If you read on, that say in their heart. So whatever settled on the lees means has something to do with the condition of their heart. That say in their heart, watch this. Ah, the Lord's not going to do evil. The Lord's not going to do good. 
neither will he do evil. You know what they were saying? God's indifferent to this. God's not going to do good. God's not going to do evil. Look at me a second. Our destiny is in our own hands. I don't know how many times you've heard politicians stand up and they're running for office. And if they get elected, we got to understand that this country is going to be in for good. And don't forget that the decisions you make at the poll is going to have to do with that. And our destiny is in our own hands. And they believe that. And so they said, God's not going to do good. God's not going to do evil. Now, I, why would they say that? Well, they must have been talking about it. When would they talk about it? Probably when he's going about and hearing a man by the name of Zephaniah saying, the day of the Lord is near, it is near. Crashing, howling, uh, uh, distress, gloom. And probably when they would hear a man like Jeremiah saying, repent, repent. They're looking at each other saying, repent about what? That was their attitude. Settle on their leads. Now, here's the thing about the leads. I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't know. So the only thing I do is study it out and cleared off a spot and tried to do some research and find out what in the world that meant. And it had to do with those that would be familiar with the vineyard country or the growing of grapes. And of course, we understand from reading the scripture, reading from Jesus, that people about him were familiar with the vine and the branches and the grapes and the vineyard. In fact, Israel was called his vineyard in the book of Isaiah in chapter number five. And so anyway, it has to do with the gathering of grapes. So we can kind of go back and just use your imagination. You may not know any more about it than I did, but you can go back in your imagination and understand that it would be time for the grape harvest. And uh, when it came time for the grape harvest, they would have um, the pickers out picking the grapes and they would have those that would take the carts or the backpacks and carry them to the what? The wine press. And there would be the wine press in a particular secluded area of that vineyard. And they would carry, uh, carry the grapes there and they would put the grapes in the wine press. And quite a process going on here because there were those that would be in the wine press uh, with bare feet and they would be trampling out the grapes. And down at the bottom of this big, huge vat or this wine press would be a conduit that comes out the bottom and runs out to the side. And so out at the end, then they would have workers that would be there gathering in the juice. And it would not have been in transparent bottles like I have right here tonight, but it would have been in skins or it would have been in earthen vessels where they would have gathered. They'd gather it, set it aside, and then others would carry it down to the wine cellar or to a cave somewhere, and they would store it there. So all this process is going on and they're trampling out the grapes. Now, as they trample out the grapes and the juice comes out, uh, we understand this, don't we? That more is going to flow out than just the juice. There's going to be the fiber of the grape, the, the, uh, the, uh, the pulp of the grape is going to come out. And so it's going to come out with the juice. And so they would gather it down here and they would go set it then for storage in a cave, a wine cellar, or whatever the case might be. And there it's set. Now, we know, and I can show you right here, we know that when this bottle, now, I, imagination, please. When this bottle was filled up at the wine press, oh, you bought that at the store. You have no imagination whatsoever. Now, come on, imagine with me. When this bottle was filled at the wine press, we know that some of that pulp and fiber uh, from the grape came in. And what happens to it? It goes to the bottom. And you can see it from right about here, even in this room. Isn't it amazing? You can see it. Can't you? <laughs> Hour and 40 minutes, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. You can see it, huh? I mean, there it is right there down. Just changes color and you can tell there's stuff there. The juice is here. And the stuff is down here. The stuff down here is called the lees. That's what it's called. And the juice is settled on the lees. Now, I wouldn't know this at all, except for researching now. And what they say is that the lees can actually contribute 
to the goodness of the juice, but it cannot be ignored and contribute good. So that if this juice just sits upon the lees, eventually the lees are going to have a negative effect upon the juice. And what's going to happen is the lees are going to start affecting the sweetness of the juice so that when someone comes to draw from the vessel and drink, they won't taste the sweetness that they're expecting. They'll begin to notice a harshness, a bitterness, an unpleasant taste. And that's what happens. And then on top of that, if no process is taken, it's not only going to get bitter, watch this, it starts to coagulate. It starts to thicken. Eventually, it's no good. It won't even be usable. It'll be good for absolutely nothing. It was a waste to go out and harvest it, to gather it in, to store it, and all of that. If the juice is just allowed to settle on the leaves. Now, before we move on with this, I want to ask you a question. What did God say about the men's hearts of Jerusalem? It said their hearts were settled on the lees. Okay, so to be settled on the lees, it means those two things. If it's settled on the lees and nothing is done about it to change the course of things, then what happens, they begin to have this harshness or this bitterness instead of sweetness. Now think about that. We're not talking necessarily about the vineyard industry tonight. We're talking about the hearts of men. And somebody said, oh, those people were in really bad shape, those people of Israel. And uh, I'm, I'm just saying to you, Brother Sam, those people of Israel, they weren't in bad shape. They were committing adultery, idolatry, rather. And if they were pursuing after Malcolm and after Balaam, then those men definitely had some heart issues. These are men, their heart was really in bad shape. I agree. Yeah, that's it's exactly right. And if they're not seeking the Lord... In fact, they're seeking whatever is uh, made by God instead of seeking God. Or if they're seeking counsel apart from God, then no wonder they're really in bad shape uh -huh, because they haven't been seeking the Lord. Excuse me just a second. May I remind you, you don't have to be in Israel and following the Canaanites and the Ammonites to commit a idolatry. And may I remind you that it is entirely possible for the most sincere Christian in this room to come to the place in their life when they're not seeking God, but seeking their own wisdom and seeking man's wisdom and taking counsel from the ungodly. Excuse me, that is not something done by total and absolute pagans who have totally and absolutely shunned God. It happens by a process and it happens by being settled on the lees and nothing happening to prevent it. And what happens then is there begins to be a harshness, there begins to be a bitterness and it can happen in the hearts of men just like it was happening and has happened to the people of Israel. I pastored this church and, and uh, Bible Baptist church and I've been standing before congregations for all these years and trying to preach since I left here as well. And I don't know everything and I don't know how to read people always and I misread things uh, uh, many, many times. There's no doubt that that's the case. But I can tell you right now that there are people sitting in this room right now like there would be at Bible Baptist church in Stillwater and like there would be in almost any church anywhere that at one time, it was all about the sweetness of being a child of God and your life being used to be a blessing to other people. And through the process of time, the sweetness was gone and a harshness came in. Hardly anything is more heart-wrenching than to watch people who once knew the joy of the Lord, who were once a source of joy for others of the people of God, to see all of a sudden that the music that once thrilled their heart now comes under scrutiny and criticism. That preaching that once confronted them about their life is now called negativism and they're looking for something that will be more palatable for them and for their family that won't make them feel so uncomfortable and won't make them feel guilty when they are not seeking God. Excuse me. 
and when they are not seeking God. Won't make them feel okay about themselves. And because after all, God prospers and God blesses so we can enjoy life here. I'm just going to tell you right now, the prosperity that God gives his people and the blessing that God gives his people isn't so we can just sit down here, twiddle our thumbs and have a lot of fun and go a lot of places and do a lot of things. We exist here for his purposes and for his glory. And there are people, watch this now, they come to the place in their life whereas once there was sweetness, then all of a sudden it's critical. It's words of bitterness. Well, social media. No, oh, some people were managing this well before social media. Mm-hmm. And no doubt it's a venue. No doubt it's very productive for the causes of the enemy. But there's bitterness. There's a critical spirit. Still go to church. I mean, we've got kids. You think we're going to drop out of church? No, we're going to drop out of church, but just sit around and criticize everything. Analyze. A, a church analyst. <laughs> go and analyze what's wrong. We had a guy at our church that was in Stillwater for, uh, he was there quite a while. And then he left and, and he left our church and went to another church. And the issues, I, I don't have time to go into that. It's so petty and silly anyway. And then he went through that and he was in church to church to church. And one day, Pastor, I met a businessman downtown. And he says, does Dr. So-and-so, didn't he used to come to Bible Baptist Church? I said, yeah, he's there several years. He said, I'll t- he said I'll tell you what, uh, I met him here uh, in the past year. He said, that guy has the most incredible gift. I said, yeah, what's that? I'm thinking, maybe I missed it while he was there. But he said, this guy has the most incredible gift. I said, what is that? He said, he'll go join a church and he'll observe things for a while. He'll go tell the pastor what's wrong and what ought to be done in that church. Then he'll move on to another church and he just kind of goes from church to church. And I thought, the gift of critique, the gift of being a church analyst and telling everybody what's wrong. No, no. The last thing in the world this or any church needs is trying to do what's supposed to be done is people sitting around analyzing and analyzing and criticizing and, and manifesting harshness instead of sweetness and, and bitterness instead of what is supposed to come out of your life and what is supposed to come out of my life. Exactly. And that's what was happening with these men and they were harsh. And the next thing that happens is that not only is there the uh, ruining of the taste and that harshness and that, uh, that bitterness that comes in, but then it gets to where it gets coagulated. The heart gets thickened and the heart gets coagulated. Now, I know it's Wednesday night. I understand that. But I can tell you the truth. It is possible to stand in a pulpit and have the wrong spirit. It is a It is possible to hold the position of the man that stands behind the pulpit and have your heart cold and hardened and indifferent. I wish I didn't know that, but I do know that. Well, you've observed this in people? Probably, but I didn't have to observe it in people. I've known what it's like to preach, confront people with the Word of God, and then go in my office or some private place and get alone with God and say, oh God, am I being a hypocrite or what? My heart is not where it's supposed to be. My passion is not at the level it's supposed to be. My diligence is not, my love for you and therefore for your people is not where it's supposed to be. Yeah, it can happen. It can happen to the guy in the pulpit. It can happen to the people in the pew. It can happen to the most sincere and well-meaning person in this room. You got to be careful because God's not in favor of that. Well, nobody's perfect. That's never the issue. You can take the biggest idiot in the country and he can understand that nobody's perfect. We don't need to hear that line anymore. We understand that. That's not the issue. The issue is, does he have our heart? The issue is, are we passive and indifferent? You know what happens to people that get this, uh, you know what happens to people that get this uh, complacent and bitter heart and critique and all of this? You know what happens to people whose heart is hardened and it gets coagulated or thickened and it's not able to be touched and it's not able to be moved and there's no emotion there? You know what happens to a person like that? I'll tell you what happens. 
They get to the place where they think that God is as indifferent to them as they are to him. And that's not so. Basically, what we're talking about is an attitude of complacency and indifference indifference toward God. That's where they were. The men are settled on their lees. They didn't have the right spirit. Their heart was hardened and coagulated. And and, hold on just a second. The Lord is not going to do good. And the Lord is not going to do evil. What are they saying? We are indifferent to God. And he's indifferent to us. Well, they're about to see he's not. He's not indifferent to them. And he's not indifferent to you. You may have things not go your way. You may hit a bump in the road. You may hit some kind of a disappointment in your life. You may come to some troubled and difficult, struggling time in your life. And you may not respond to it in humility before God and dependence upon God and seeking God. And you may get to where you're even bitter and sour and angry towards the things of God. And you're going to get to the place where you think that God's okay with that. And he is as indifferent to you as you are to him. And I can tell you on the authority of his word, that's not so. That's not so. Mm -mm. You're his child. You belong to him. We raised kids and got grandkids. We'd wish that all the kids fulfilled every dream and ambition we had. Or the grandkids that all loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind. But we've had our children and grandchildren have their spiritual ups and downs. I don't ever remember sitting and saying, well, this goes any further. I'm done with them. I don't ever remember. I don't ever remember that coming into my mind. Ever. We got 11 grandkids and, and four great grandkids and number five great grandkid on the way. So we, we appreciate our kids, our children, our grandchildren. We love them. And when they've had their ups and downs spiritually, their bumps in the road, their backslidings or whatever you want to call it, it never entered our mind to say one more step and I'm done with him. And if you think because you've gotten indifferent toward God that he eventually is going to get indifferent to you, you may have forgotten if in fact you're his child. He's your father. And he is not indifferent to you. And he's not going to become indifferent to you. And he has little services like this and chapters like this and sermons preached in the New Testament age out of this kind of stuff to remind us that our heart's condition matters before God. That whether we are uh, full of his sweetness and his goodness and trying to be delight and a blessing to somebody else or whether we're mad at everybody and we think it's all about us anyway, I'm just telling you right now, those things matter to God and he intends for you to be where you're supposed to be. Well, nobody's perfect. I told you don't bring that up again. <laughs> well, here's what God's done. By using this settled on the lease, we understand there's a way to prevent this from happening. This, ruining this, there's a way to prevent that. So what they would do is to prevent the lees from <clears throat> causing this harshness and bitterness on the Jews, what they would do is they would go into the cellar, I suppose, from what I read, hire people to go into their wine cellars and shake the juice. Just shake it up. Now, you know what happens. See, you can't see the stuff down there anymore. Can you? No, because it's all up here. It's all in there. So you shake it up and it's all up there. And after you give it a good shake, then you go set it down again. And after you set it down again, it's going to go back to the bottom and gather again. So you got to go back and have it shaken again and shaken again. And it settles. And then until it is used, you go back and you shake it again. And, and, and you shake it some more. That's the way you do it. Do you ever get shaken by God? Yeah. 
I'm standing right here right now. I didn't write down anything uh, about this or write down any stories to tell or anything like now. But I'm just telling you, I could stand here for a long time tonight and tell you things in my own life. I mean, I'm 77 years old, got saved when I was six. 71 years, I've been his child. Has he had to shake you up before? No, uh-uh. Sarcasm, I'm sure it is. Well, of course he has. And I'm just thinking of the ways. Sometimes it had to do with my devotion to him. Sometimes it had to do with my attitude towards God's people. I remember pastoring the Bible Baptist Church in Stillwater. I'll just share one little incident here with you. And I was preaching revival down in Bowie, Texas. And I'd been gone all week from uh, Sunday night through Friday night. And I was driving back on Saturday morning. And I was anxious to get back to Bible Baptist Church in Stillwater. And I came up uh, Highway 81 and crossed the Red River into, oh yes, the land of Canaan. Left Egypt and got into Canaan. And so... I, I was going along there and I was thinking about the services on Sunday and what I'd studied to preach while I was gone away that week and excited about it and everything. And as I'm driving along, all of a sudden I start weeping. I'm, I'm on Highway 81, just about less than two miles north of the Red River. And I, I, I just start weeping and I just pull over and I don't even know what I'm crying about. And I just start weeping. I just sit there and say, Lord, what have I, what have I, I don't know. What is this? What's happening? And I sat there and had a session with the Lord and prayed and took time there. And I didn't hear a voice. I didn't, I didn't hear a voice. I didn't see any lightning. Nobody came and got in the car with me and talked and then disappeared. I didn't, none of that. Just in communion. The Holy Spirit knows how to talk to his people. And you know what the Lord showed me? I thought I was going to have to leave Stillwater. And this is in 1983. And I still had seven years more there. I thought I'd probably have 30 more years there. And you know what the Lord showed me? Here's what he showed me. Get your hands off of my church. That's my church. Because of what we've been through and where the church came from and where it got to, I developed a sense of ownership. Like it was mine. And I was pastoring the people like they were mine. And I was a cattle driver instead of a shepherd. Everybody listen to this? And the Lord just spoke in my heart and I mean reminded me that He can take me away from there anytime, any way He wants to. And that is not my church. And that was in September of 1983. And my attitude towards the people of God at that church was never the same again. Nor my role as the pastor was never the same again. You know what God did on that highway that day? He got a hold of me. He shook me upright. You know why? Because I was making it way about more me, more than it was supposed to be. That's for sure. I, I, I know that. And I mean, he just shook me up and he said, I'm not going to put up with this. Basically, that's what was going on. And, and no, I didn't get thrown to the ground. I didn't roll on the highway or anything like that. But I didn't have to. He got a hold of my heart and he shook it. Is he ever shaking your heart? He knows how. One phone call. Am I right? One phone call can change everything you're thinking about and everything you have planned to do. One phone call. Just like that. And I've got stuff going through my mind right now. What? And all of a sudden, I mentioned Brother Floyd's passing. Brother Larry Booth, nine months before that. That was a time when God was shaking our whole church as well as this preacher's heart and soul. God knows how to do that. He means for our heart to be His. I said He means for us to have a heart for Him. He doesn't mean for us to go to church on Wednesday night and write it out. He doesn't mean for us to go to church and sing these songs and pretend. He doesn't mean for us to go through the motion. Well, at least I'm not out of church. At least I tithe. That's, that's not what He means. He means to have our heart. And he's serious about it. And we get complacent and different. And we can go through services and not hear from God. And we can be confronted with the word and nothing stirs or moves within us. Maybe it's a signal to us that we ought to say, you know what I ought to do? I probably ought to submit myself to a shaking before God right now and receive the shaking from the preaching of the word of God rather than God ringing my bell and shaking me in another way that will get my attention. 
I call for voluntary shaking. Amen. I want to submit myself to God at the prayer time in the morning. Oh, God, have my heart. I want you to have my heart. I voluntarily submit myself to you to keep my heart shaken and stirred. Amen. I don't want to go out of this life playing games, pretending, going through the motions. I wouldn't want God's people to ever get to the place of complacency where they think because they're indifferent to God, he's also indifferent to you. He is not indifferent to you. He wants your heart. God knows how to shake it up. One phone call can do it. Is this a threat? <laughs> no, it's reality. One phone call can make us Refocus our thinking entirely toward God. Mm. Shake it up. Second, I'm about done. Second thing to do, okay, so it's all back there. Isn't it? It's all back there, right there. Juice and stuff. Lees. Here's the second thing to do. And Jeremiah talked about this, as well as maybe Ezekiel. I think he did too. Here's what they would do. Experts like me are watching to see me make sure what's going on here. Now, why did I stop? See, you're not experts. Well, the reason I stopped, I'm just kidding. The reason I stopped is because some of that stuff started going in there a little bit at a time. Just do a little bit more. But you got to stop because it'll all go in there. So you stop. Then you set it down, let it settle again, and you'll pour it again later on. And then you set this down. And the reason you set it down is because no matter how hard you might try, some of that stuff got in there and it's going to settle again. So you did what Jeremiah says, you pour it from vessel to vessel. Now, I have another question. What is it we're actually talking about from this passage? The hearts of men. Two that's rights is not going to get it. We are preaching about and the passage is about the hearts of men. That's what he's talking about. And do you know, I, I can tell you this for sure. Do you know that the sweetest and best time of your life as a child of God is when you were most available to be poured out for him? That was the best time of your life. <laughs> you weren't in a mode of self-protection. You weren't watching saying, well, it just takes too much time. By the time we do this, I don't have time for this. And I don't have time for that. And, and besides that, uh, things are different now. Uh, who's got time to work a bus route in the kind of busy society and schedule that we have right now? I, I don't have time for those kind of things. But you know when the best time of your life was? When you were most available to be poured out by God. I've seen it change. I've seen it. I mean, I started out in the ministry over in Dell City in 1974, and we had eight bus routes. And the next thing you know, we had 12 bus routes. Sandra worked a route, and I worked a route. Never caught her. Chased her for seven years and never could build the route that she had. I just couldn't do it. Best bus worker I ever saw. Who put that step there? But anyway, <laughs> and, and I remember doing that. And, and both of us volunteered for the bus route. It wasn't a part of my job descriptions as associate or anything. We just volunteered for the bus route. Then we'd get in trouble if our bus route wasn't up every week. But still, it was a volunteer thing. And I can remember we'd add another bus route and say, we need some bus workers, need some bus workers. My wife would take somebody with her. I'd take somebody with me. Buddy Townsend, who just went to heaven a couple of weeks ago, was pastor over there, also worked a bus route. He'd train some man. and I'd train some guy. And my wife would train some ladies. And they'd get out on the bus route and went to Stillwater. And we was on the bus route. And my wife was uh, worked a bus route for 25 years. And I, 
I, I, could, I could talk for an hour about incredible things that happened. Uh, and, and her bus man is still working a bus right after we came here. And I'm just saying, and, and never, we never did sit down and say, well, we got we to stop doing this kind of stuff. Man, this is just this is wearing us out. We had bus kids at our house a, a lot of the times. I'm not going to say all the time, but a lot of times, you know, parents that weren't home, bring the bus kid home and they'd eat roast carrots, potatoes and gravy with us. And it was wonderful. Have a good time. And I remember a friend day, my wife stood up and introduced 27 people on a Sunday morning that she got off her bus route for a friend day. 27 people called them all by name and none of them had an English name. I said, none of them. They were from Nigeria to South America to India, Japan, and the regions beyond. I'm just telling you. And, and we didn't go home and say, uh, yeah, I just don't think we can do this anymore. My soul. And we were going through some of the church papers of the uh, 1983 is when we were going through uh, from Bible Baptist Church in Stillwater. And we was looking at the people that got saved and they were getting saved off of bus routes and they were getting saved off of visitation and they were getting saved. And we were baptizing. We were baptizing people every week, sometimes twice during the week and just baptizing one after another after another. And we get up and say we had started out with four routes. The next thing you know, we had eight. The next thing you know, we had 12. And we're standing up and saying, we need some workers, need some workers. We had people that, we, we never lacked for workers. You stand up and say you need it. You got it. Well, I don't think you understand the 21st century. I don't think... Uh, the 21st century is the issue. But I do believe there is less of a willingness to be poured out for the Lord. I mean, you don't hang around Brother Sam. He, he doesn't even believe in playing golf. I, I've had preachers say that to me. He, he doesn't even believe in playing golf. Well, the way I played, no. Nobody would believe in it. <laughs> I have enough things testing my Christianity without playing golf, but I'm just saying, it's one thing to have a hobby. It's another thing to be had by a hobby. It's one thing to have a career. It's another thing to be had by a career. Does everybody listen to this? I'm saying to you, he wants our hearts. And the best time of any believer's life, I could ask for testimonies across this room right now and saints of my generation and right behind me and maybe two generations behind me could stand and testify, he's right the best time of our life as Christians, the best time of our life in relation to the Lord was when we are most available to be poured out for the Lord. Yeah. And that's what he wants. And that's how the life produces what it's supposed to produce. Goodness. Sweetness. <laughs> A blessing. Or bitterness. Selfishness. Indifference toward God. Lord, you have access to the heart of every person in this room. And every person in the sound of my voice. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in such a way that there'd be men and women and young people alike to be willing to humble themselves and say, oh Lord, I don't want to grow sour spiritually. I don't want to become passive and indifferent to you. Oh God, I want you to have my life. I want you to pour it out for your own purposes and your own glory. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work. I pray that there'd be submission to voluntary shaking. There'd be a submission to being poured out for your honor, your glory, your purposes. I pray, O oh Lord, that if there are those that know I've lost the sweetness of my life as a believer. I've lost the joy. It's not there like it was. No doubt there are some that would start pointing fingers here and there and find all kinds of people and things to blame 
for their apathy, their spiritual indifference, the hardness of heart. But your word is not vague. Your word is not vague. Where'd they go wrong? They quit seeking the Lord. What should we do? Seek you with all of our heart. Yield our hearts, our lives to you. What did they do? Idolatry. Things became more important to them. Though they have no capacity to satisfy, they became more important to them than walking with you, being in fellowship with you, communing with you. Father, I pray you'd take this invitation and use it for your glory. I don't know who ought to separate themselves from the pew and bend their knee at an altar and talk to you about this. I don't know who should. That's not my business. I just pray your Holy Ghost would not leave us alone about this. That your Holy Spirit would be at work. In Jesus' name, amen. Right now, the invitation is open. We're going to stand. Brother Aaron will sing the invitation song. Why don't we get it started right now? And if God's spoken to your heart and you know, I should turn aside and talk to God about this matter. I should. And why don't you do that?